like to invite you to a soul level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. Another gem for today's Song of the Soul. We'll be talking with Ellen White, and that's White with a Y in the middle, by the way, who hails from Portland, Oregon. But I have the privilege of hosting her here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where she's doing a bit of a tour with her friend and our local prodigy, Sue Orfield. Ellen's got a beautiful voice, and her bluesy lyrics head straight for the heart and the soul. Alone, or with her band, Reflex Blue, or with Sue Orfield, Ellen's music is likely to fill your cup to overflowing. Ellen White is here with me in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Ellen, I'm so pleased to have you here today for Song of the Soul. Thank you. I appreciate having the opportunity to share my history and background in music with everybody. And we're so lucky to have you here in the Chippewa Valley for this short period. You're out here with your friend Sue Orfield, who, of course, does wonderful music all over the area. How far back does your connection go? Well, with Sue, uh, we met in 1996 at a blues festival in Republic, Washington. It was called The Kettle Full of Blues. And she was performing with Nicole Fournier, a really stellar lead guitar player from the area at that time. We met at a post-festival jam, and it was the first time I'd ever heard Sue perform, and I was just completely knocked out by her ability, and I just said, i got to meet this woman. So we met during a short break, and then I got up and sang with her and Nicole, and the rest is history, as they say, and we became very fast friends, and she lived in Seattle during that period of time, and I'm from Oregon City, which is just outside of Portland. And I have a band in the area, and so periodically I would invite Sue to come down and perform with my group, and they absolutely just loved her. In exchange, I would go up to Seattle and perform with the various groups that she was in at that time. Finally, in 2000, we just decided that we needed to bring her with us to record our third recording in Burbank, California, and that's the Standing at the Sunrise recording. When she moved back to Eau Claire about eight years ago, we decided that we had to continue to keep playing music together. I mean, our friendship was clearly well-founded, and we just didn't want to give up on the music. So every year now, since I think we nailed it to 2006, I've been coming out and performing with the band, with the exception of last year, where our schedules got a little too crazy and we couldn't really make it happen. So it's been a really wonderful relationship, and you know, to have that extra seasoning of music thrown into the mix is just fantastic. Just love working with her and her band. Well, of course, she's saxophone. She rips that sax so wonderfully. I think of you as a guitarist, though that's not how you started out. What was your first instrument? 
My very first instrument was a Jamar piano. And for some of you out there, you may know what this is. It's this tiny little boxy upright piano that was probably about a yard across and a yard high and had just enough white and black keys to make this really cool little tinkly sound on it. And so I used to bang on that all the time as a child. I was very much into music from a very young age. Neither one of my parents were musical, but I have grandparents who I never met because they passed before I was born who were very musical. And it was on my father's side of the family from Ireland. And so the piano was my first instrument, but I would have to say that voice is what carried me through all of these years. So I used to sing more than I used to talk. And in fact, when I got into kindergarten and elementary school, I was very disappointed that I had to do more talking than singing. I just thought life really was a song all along. And so I didn't think twice about making up songs and singing. And so that was my early start on the uh, little old JMR piano. And the very first song that I ever performed, because my parents just thought it was totally adorable, was I'm a Little Teapot. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think anyone captured that on video or anything. Today, you'd, you'd be up on YouTube. And there's a lot of folks up on YouTube. How about if we throw in a song by the hit crew called I'm a Little Teapot? Good with you? Very good with me. Oh, and after you play that, how about if you play Birabel Polka? Because the very first instrument I ever learned how to play was the accordion, where I got nine years of formal training. And we'll do that. I'm a little teapot by the hit crew, and we'll do Birabel Polka. Of course, where would you expect to hear that? The prototypical spot would be on the Ed Sullivan Show, Myron Florin, and the Szymanski Sisters. First, I'm a little teapot. I'm a special teapot, it is true Here, let me show 
We're sharing Ellen White's Song of the Soul. You heard first, I'm a Little Teapot, and then Beer Barrel Polka. That was from the Ed Sullivan Show, Myron Florin, and the Sermonsky Sisters. And I could just imagine Ellen playing that. Is that one of the songs that you played a fair amount? Is that you had to stand up and when you were 8, 9, 10, 11, up to 15, you had to play Beer Barrel Polka all the time? Well, Beer Barrel Polka was a huge request from every single audience we ever played. And so it would be like Louie Louie in classic rock. So for us, it was Beer Barrel Polka. But that's not all we played. I mean, my instructor at that time, Miss Betty Barr, was very much into having us not only play the accordion, but sing. So she was all about Broadway music and some classical pieces and some popular tunes of the time. So our group, when I first started playing the accordion when I was six years old, grew from just a couple of us to 150 accordion students. And our big claim to fame was riding in the Orange Bowl Parade on the Pepsi-Cola float, performing in Florida, then marching in taffeta outfits in 100 degrees heat, about 150 degree or 150 percent humidity. And that was pretty brutal. It was really a good experience. And much to the credit of Betty, she was very particular about who got to sing solos. And I turned out to be one of her little favorites. She would feature me on all these Broadway tunes from Hello, Dolly to South Pacific and, you know, all the great Broadway musicals of that particular time. So that's kind of how it got started for me. And where was this happening, Ellen? I lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida for 13 years. That was a big part of my growing up in that area as a child. I went to a Catholic school for nine years, and it was also during that period that my mother and father passed away. Very difficult time for me as a young child. I lost my father when I was 10, and I lost my mother when I was 15. No brothers and sisters, so I went into foster care. And for a lot of people, foster care is an awful experience. You hear these nightmarish stories about children being horribly neglected. And yes, that's true in some instances. But in my case, I was absolutely divine to be in this particular situation. It was wonderful. And in fact, it was a really good period for me because I had a very rough upbringing. Um, Both my parents were alcoholic and introduced me to alcohol at a very young age. So I had some very severe difficulties with learning ability. Academically, I did terribly, but musically, you know, something was there all along. That was the saving grace for me during my childhood. So from Fort Lauderdale, I moved to North Carolina after my mom and dad passed away and went to boarding school for a year, met some wonderful people there, and got introduced to bluegrass music during that time. Then went to Connecticut and finished high school and went back to North Carolina after I graduated from high school to continue living in the area because I just loved it. It was Hickory, North Carolina, so sort of in the central part of the state. And then joined the Army for three years. I was in Germany (laughs) for three years, marching around with my beer stein. Whee! (laughs) When you said beer barrel polka, I said, oh, she must have grown up in central Wisconsin. I mean, that would have been the polka mystique of the area. What were the other musical influences of your childhood? Was it all I'm a Little Teapot? No, I was, uh, my parents also had a big collection of big band music, especially my mother. She loved Glenn Miller, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald. And one of my favorite combinations of bands was Ella Fitzgerald with Count Basie, who I absolutely adored. Everything that they did was just so wonderful. And those horns were really exciting for me to hear. I just loved those horn arrangements. And in fact, on the records that I have released in the last 15 years, I have horn arrangements 
songs on every one of my albums. So that was a big part of growing up. And then the Beatles, of course, hit in 1964. The first song that I remember was She Loves You. And so that was just such a wonderful tune. And for Count Basie and Ella Fitzgerald, it was I'm Beginning to See the Light. So those two songs were really very much a part of my heart portfolio for music. So let's go through that heart portfolio for Ellen White. We'll start with one of the songs influential for her. I'm beginning to see the light here performed by Ella Fitzgerald and Count Basie. And then we'll continue right into those wild men, the Beatles. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never cared much for moonlit skies I never winked back at fireflies But now that the stars are in your eyes I'm beginning to see the light I never went in for afterglow Or candlelight on the mistletoe But now when you turn the lamp down low I'm beginning to see the light Used to ramble through the park Shadow boxing in the dark Then you came and caused a spark That's a four alarm fire now I never made love by lantern shine I never saw rainbows in my wine But now that your lips are burning mine I'm beginning to see the light Oh, yes. 
with that last song was it was by the Beatles she loves you and it was one of those early influential songs for Ellen White who's sharing her song of the soul today here before that you heard Count Basie and Ella Fitzgerald I'm beginning to see the light and of course both of those songs Ellen are about love what percentage of the songs you do do you think are about love happy sad or missed or whatever Well, every song tells a story, and most songs are relational at the heart of them. Uh, That's a very good question, and I'm just going to guess at what I think, you know, is is the percentage. I'm going to say probably 60 to 70% of our songs have love at the root of it, especially the last recording that we put out. It's about love, remorse, fear, and strength. And it sort of goes in an order of those tunes to be able to hear the emotion that that comes through. Love being, of course, victorious. You know, love conquers all. And people just gravitate, I think, more to love songs than any other kind of song. So it's on everybody's palate to hear and gravitate to love songs, and myself included. And so you must have been gravitating also to love. Now, one thing that everybody knows is that any performer, any singer, songwriter, has to have piles of groupies. How does that dovetail with actually trying to have love life as opposed to sex, drug, and blues, or rock and roll? Well, I think for me, there's a fairly large backstory that goes along with that question you've asked. For many years, I abused 
drugs and alcohol. So because of that, feelings were clearly numbed and buried. And when I got clean and sober in 1989, I realized for the first time in my life that feelings are starting to show up and that I could try to identify what those feelings were. Because when you're in a haze with drugs and alcohol, it's very hard to really feel the full-on experience of feelings, love being one of them, especially because you kind of have a sense, maybe kind of, sort of, about what love is, but until you have the first real experience of your life with understanding that, you know, the heart opens up and you're ready to receive and reciprocate, it's a pretty remarkable experience. And I think some people hit it at different times of their lives. I grew up with a couple of friends who in seventh grade knew they were in love. And when you look at seventh graders, you go, what do they know about love? This is like puppy love, junior high, you know, wild hormones out of control. They're still together today. In my instance, I thought about love and I kind of romanticized the idea about love. So relationships really were not about love as much as they were about a repeat performance about what I grew up in. So some of that was emotional abuse, some of it was physical abuse, some of it was other kinds of abuse. And so I had a very uh, a skewed picture of what it was. So I hadn't really hit on it until I met my husband, my future husband. That was in February of 1989 when I went to work for Clackamas County Social Services and I was hired to be a case manager. And it was during that time that I had, was still using and abusing drugs and alcohol. But when I laid eyes on him for the first time, he met me at the door, first day of work, and I looked at him, I thought, oh my gosh, something just took my breath away. There was something about his spirit that just instantly got my attention. And I had never, ever had that feeling about anybody in my entire life. During those first few weeks of working at Clackamas County Social Services, John, my husband, who was the director at that time, we had to attend a three-day mandatory drug and alcohol workshop, everybody who was working with families. So it was during that period of the workshop for the first time that I got a serious indicator that I had a problem. And it was over a breakout session called the stages of alcoholism and drug addiction, stages one through four. And I was clearly between stage three and four. And it just shocked me when I actually saw what these drugs and alcohol were doing to me. And I thought, oh my gosh. But After that workshop, you know, I went right back out and used like a good addict and alcoholic does and continued until March 29th. Here's when it came about for me. I was performing with my old band, The Night Watchers. We were in the most god-awful bar in Portland, Oregon. I won't name it in case anybody's out there (laughs) might know this place. But I had really done too much cocaine. And so I was in this restroom in Portland And I had just done an enormous amount of cocaine. And all of a sudden, it felt like somebody had their hands on my shoulder and was pushing me down. So I braced myself in the stall, thinking, oh, my God, this is it. This is the the big moment. And I had this, I call it the voice of God, because at that moment, I heard him say, choose now. And there was no question what that meant. No question. I didn't have to second guess it. It was like, oh my God, this is like, choose life, you know? So then the afterthoughts that came in as soon as I heard that, first thing, 
I thought. I could not possibly live with the idea of my children having to explain that their mother overdosed on cocaine and alcohol and how awful that would be for them to have to tell my future grandchildren who I would never see if that were the case, if that were what was going to happen to me at that moment. So that was the first realization. The second realization was I had completely lost all self-respect. This was the moment of truth for me. It was just like, you have really come to your final bottom here, and that's it. This is what's happening now. This is not a movie script. And the third thing on a more humorous note was the paper back in Portland has consistently misspelt my last name forever. And I thought it would just be the damnedest thing if they misspelt my name in my own damn obituary you know, and so with those three thoughts, I thought, okay, this is it. This is the proverbial wake-up call. So the next day, I felt awful, just really beat up like a Mack truck had dragged me down 94 at 80 miles an hour. Everything in me was broken, my spirit most of all. So I, at that time, I was going to family counseling, and I called my counselor, and I said, I really, really need to come in and talk to you. This is an emergency. I have to speak to you. So I went in, and I said, I'm going to tell you the truth. I have a serious issue with alcohol and drugs. And she goes, I can't help you anymore. I do family counseling. This is the track we've been on for this period of time. So she said, I'm going to give you the name of somebody that I know, and you're going to have to start going to a 12-step program. That's it. She gave me the name of this wonderful recovery counselor. And now keep in mind, I just started working for the county, so my benefits had not kicked in. So it's not like I could just quit and go into treatment for 30 days to get that therapy set up. So I had to do a homespun version of outpatient treatment. So this gentleman, who I'll never forget, Charlie Smith, said, you need to come see me four days a week for two hours at a time, and you're going to follow everything that I have mapped out here on this piece of paper. What you eat, the amount of therapeutic vitamins you take, you do not skip a meal, blah, 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 blah. Very militant about this. And for the first year, he was the guardian angel of my life to get me through this horrific time. You know, and it was physical withdrawal, it was emotional withdrawal, it was all of these. I was just a white tornado out of control completely. I didn't know what was going on, and all the, and now I've got, you know, I have two kids I'm still raising, trying to keep focused on that. So it was a very difficult, difficult, difficult time period for me that first year. Back to the workplace for just a moment. John, who I had mentioned, I had really gotten this intuitive sense about him when I first met him. Come to find out, he was a writer. And I thought, oh, this is exciting. And it just happened that during that period of time, I was recording this song, Bring on the Storm. I started to realize the music was so powerful, but the lyrics didn't match the power of the music. So I thought, you know, I'm going to take a stab at this and ask John if he would be willing to give this tune a rewrite. Just for fun. Let's just see what happens. And this is before we were an item, okay? So I hand him the lyrics, and he's got a recording of the song. The next day, it's on my desk at work, completely rewritten, completely phrase-worthy, and absolutely I mean, it was like that moment when John Belushi is in church in the Blues Brothers movie and the blue light is shining on him. That blue light was shining on that piece of paper with these lyrics on it. I thought, oh, my God, this is terrific. This is tremendous. These are exactly the words. And he saw, and this is really ironic, the song really is about recovery. Completely. And it doesn't have to be from drugs and alcohol like I've been talking about here. It can be recovering from any situation in your life. I mean, it was just 
the anthem for recovery. And so this song, Bring on the Storm, really, really speaks to that issue. Storm, performed by Ellen White and Reflux Blue, but that was a song written by her and her husband, John Mullen. You said you weren't an item yet when he actually did that. As soon as that happened, did you say, okay, your number's taken, here it is? Well, it wasn't quite that easy. There were some complications involved in on his end of us getting together, which is another radio interview at some point in time. But the long and short of it is that it became really apparent that there was something there for us. Everything about him just felt so right. And 
then as I'm going through, you know, therapy around this recovering from drug and alcohol issue, I'm, I'm talking about this person in my life, how I really feel like he set a bar for me because other people that I had been with before that were a repeat of my history with my family. And I thought, wow, maybe for the first time I'm seeing something new, something I had never experienced before. And that was a real awakening for me. To see the gentleness about him. I mean, I tell people I have a whole list of nevers on John. You know, he's never belittled me. He's never said an unkind word to me. Never spoke out of turn. Never put me down in front of anybody. I mean, this is what my history was all about. So that list of nevers has been constant for 21 years. Got married in 1991, September 28th. And we just knew we had to be together. And we've had a very together relationship all these years. And, you know, I don't mean that as a flower child kind of expression. I mean, it really is true. We are, we present a united front. And there just happens to be a song on the four way stop recording called Lucky in Love. And it really, again, speaks to my history of, uh, how it all came together. So I particularly love this tune because it's got the accordion in it and I'm playing a little Zydeco background and I don't do that when we play live because over the years I have not been able to match up the voice with the accordion and do both at the same time like I used to do as a little kid. So I'm still woodshedding on that one. But this is a great tune and I'm happy to introduce it to your listening audience. Ellen White, Lucky in Love. There was no one for me I lived my days and nights in the arms of misery Oh, and the way I played it out Was to second guess and doubt all alone Inevitably, oh, I fell hard that I came to believe
Certainly, she was so lucky to find John. You must have really been doing a lot of your connecting, Ellen, during that year that you're trying to recover or to find your who you are without your drug and alcohol. Was John admitted to that process, or did you only really hook up after you were a new person? I mean, you know, in the song "Bring On the Storm," you talk about the anger inside. You talk about all this turbulence. Did he come in during the turbulence, or did he come in after you got out of the hurricane's midst? Very good question. As you recover, there's never a stop time for any particular emotion. I mean, you really are called to the task of either responding or reacting to a situation. Once you get your life in a perspective and start seeing things, you know, oh, this is why this happened. John has been in the storm with me all along. He was admitted into it, and for him to be able to withstand what he saw me go through, and there were not pretty times throughout the course of this relationship. We've had some definite trials to undertake and walk through and come out on the other side. I won't say we were unscathed, but there were some things that were clearly part of our foundation that have taught us tremendous and invaluable lessons. I have a daughter who has a lot of problems, a lot of problems, and she unfortunately lost all three of her children to state custody in Oregon because of her issues with drug and alcohol and having mental illness on top of it. And she's still out there running and gunning is what we say. And it's a very difficult place for me as a mother to see that. And a lot of people would say, well, you in, you're, it's your fault for introducing your children. They saw you this way or, or whatever. Well, yes, they didn't have the best imprinting growing up. I fully own that. I'm a, I am clearly on board with what my part was in all of that. Today, I'm a different person with the years that I have of 23 years of being clean and sober. I'm not that person they grew up with. So they can see by my demonstration and the amends that I've made to my children repeatedly, not only verbally, but demonstrated that I'm not that person. But they still see me from the early years, that imprinting, just like I still see my parents from those early years of imprinting. So that chain of events continues to be passed on generationally. And it's really up to the individual to work hard to be as 
true to yourself as you can possibly be. I mean, I'm not perfect. My emotions are not perfect. I still have very erratic, crazy thoughts, but I can arrest that now, whereas before I couldn't do that. So John has been an audience member, let's put it that way, to watching some of this as well as a full-on participant. It's really a testimony, I think, to the strength of our love and our relationship and our friendship, most of all, which is a big part of what's at the heart of it as well. So... You know, I have to say that much to the credit of John, he is a saint, and he has earned every single point <laughs> there is to sainthood. I, I sometimes teasingly and very affectionately say it's, it's, I have my own personal Jesus living with me. That's certainly convenient, isn't it? <laughs> you did say that when your moment of decision came, you felt God speaking to you, you felt the hands pressing you down, and you'd been raised Catholic. I'm kind of assuming you gave up the Catholicism along the way, what kind of religious, spiritual practice or outlook did you have at that time? Or did you have one? And, and where are you now? I mean, I, I realize that AA is its own sort of spirituality. You've got Jesus living with you. You've got God telling you to make your decision about the drugs and alcohol. What's your point of view? Being raised Catholic, when I grew up, I, I was fascinated by this sort of surrealism that surrounded the Catholic religion. The churches were opulent, those beautiful stained glass windows, the robes that the priests would wear. I thought I was walking onto a set of Warner Brothers. You know, it was just beautiful. I just thought, this is amazing. Being raised Catholic, my parents sent me to parochial school, so we did Mass every single day for eight years trying to be reverent and as you're growing into the teenage years you're starting to feel nothing but irreverent (laughs) and and at 13 I announced to my mother I wasn't going to church anymore I'm done and I think what turned it for me was my father's death I was really angry with God I was taught that God was a very vengeful God at that point so I didn't care I basically wrote it off then I just didn't believe for a long time And it wasn't until I went into the Army in 1976 over in Germany, right after the Vietnam War. It was an all-volunteer Army. I was very lonely. I was 21 years old. And I didn't date really in high school. I just wanted guys as friends, you know, because I just didn't trust at that time. A friend of mine invited me to a meeting. Jesus Freaks is what she called them. She goes, you got to come see these Jesus Freaks. They're really an interesting group. And so I went. And listen to this very young minister speak about Jesus Christ. And I immediately had a crush on him. (laughs) And so after the meeting, I went up to him and we're talking and I told him I'm a musician. You know, I thought we could find some common ground together. He asked me, he said, have you been saved? And I said, what does that mean? And so he explained what that meant. And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, I grew up Catholic. I mean, I just assume, you know, since I turned my back on the religion, that I'm not going to the place everybody else thinks they're going to. And I just really had just this odd, I don't know how else to describe it, just something pulled on me. At that point, I said, you know, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this leap of faith here. So I did. And I accepted Christ into my life. And I started writing these songs for the Lord. I was really into uh, the whole ministry. It was a Pentecostal church that I became involved with. I had introduced others to Christ. I had a very strong sense of what my purpose was. And then nine months into it, somebody handed me a bowl of hash, and it was over. It was just over at that point. So it didn't last very long. 
But I've never completely walked away from it. And I think seven years ago, when I really got serious, I had a reintroduction into a 12-step program. I have a friend in Portland who's very much the go-to person for scripture and discussion and is very open-hearted and very open-minded about it, doesn't judge anybody. So I went to her and I said, I just am really feeling this longing to reconnect again. And so that's been my walk. You know, and I'm proselytized. I mean, if people ask, of course, I'm more than willing to to share. I just feel like I can go anywhere and know that my faith will never leave me. And I'm constantly very aware of it. You know, I pray, I meditate, I write. I've been working on writing some songs in that direction. I just feel that my spiritual connection is with everybody. You know, I don't care what your belief is. I don't discount anyone for what they believe. And I think it's very important. I mean, you know, God is love. I, I understand that. That means give it back, you know, live to give. That's what I really believe is at the heart of who we are. That's my story about that. Again, we're speaking with Ellen White. She's just about to leave Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I happen to live. She's been here with Sue Orfield. It's been quite a time the two of you have had together here. What mischief have you done? Oh, we've just had a whole lot of fun on this little gathering. I've called it more of a social tour than a performance tour because I've had a, we've had a lot of time in between to just do fun things. Sue and I went to Minneapolis last Monday, and we challenged the Mall of America, and we took it on. And after seven hours of walking in that sensory overload other world, we went back to the hotel in Minneapolis and and just were completely exhausted. We had all these great intentions about going out and hearing this wonderful band, the Butanes, in the area. And we just couldn't make it happen. We were too exhausted. So that was really fun. And then yesterday in Stockholm, we were slated to perform outside at Gelly's. And everything, the band left early to go set up the equipment, which is no easy task. So two o'clock, it starts raining outside and they busted but to break down the equipment so the show had to go on so sue and i went inside of gelly's brought the whole audience from outside inside packed the room and did our thing acoustic guitar and saxophone and yeah you have to make lemonade out of lemons right so it was very memorable it was quite the show but i was sad that we didn't get to play as a band well, Ellen, we have just a few minutes left, and I'd like to get in one more song if we could. How would you like to cap off your Song of the Soul? Well, I think it would have to be the title cut off the third recording, Standing at the Sunrise. Standing at the Sunrise is something that I used to love to do as a child, get on my little banana seat bicycle and pedal down to the beach and be there just as the sun is coming up. That was just a favorite thing that I used to do. Then the move to North Carolina, it talks about moving away and don't know where I'm going to have, call my home. Uh, just, it really sort of talks about the years of struggling without parents and moving forward in my life. You know, I just really felt like that was uh, an unfortunate circumstance, but at the same time, so many wonderful things came out of it. I feel for people who are my age now who are losing their parents because they have this history, this long history with their moms and dads. And I see a different sensibility around grieving at this time of a person's life. As a child, you don't make that connection, but you never forget. I mean, you still carry the memory. Yeah, I do miss them. I really miss my mom and dad. And it's been 
you know, 45, 50 years. You know, you folks who are out there who still have your parents, count your blessings. You know, I, I really see the love that Sue's parents have for her. It's so apparent. It's just really wonderful to see them support and love her in every sense of the word. It's great to have that relationship. And I'm working on that one with my own children right now as we speak. I really hope that, you know, we can come to a place of peace at some point. So standing at the sunrise, I think, is a good way to close this. And I think that it's a song for my life. You know, it's a song of my soul. I'm just very grateful to be alive and enjoying every moment of my life today. So with that, Eau Claire, I thank you and all the other listeners out there for letting me a part of your world today. We'll talk to you again soon. Love to all of you. Been privileged to have with us today Ellen White, a gift to the Chippewa Valley at this moment, but of course to Portland, Oregon, where she resides. Again, her last name is W H Y T E, ellenwhite.com. You can find her at. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us. Y'all come back soon. Now you're here. I sure will. <laughs> Ellen White reflects blue, standing at the sunrise. Well, I'm standing at the sunrise But I just can't take the heat Yes, I'm standing at the sunrise But I just can't take the heat And the highway calls me northbound I guess it's time to move my feet
That's the last song we have time to share today, but if you go to nordenspiritradio.org, you can hear one more bonus song and story by Ellen White, Table for One. Give yourself a treat. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy, let in the light, it will heal you. And you can feel you and sing out a Song of the Soul.